Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. Thank you for joining us. We are doing a sermon series on the Gospel of John, but tonight's text is going to be a bit uh, not so much John. We're going to be in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, uh, beginning in verse 4. I'm going to read a very strange story to you that's going to set the context for what we're talking about this evening. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4, it says, They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. The word of God for the people of God. I've quipped at times that it's difficult to know sometimes what that response should be. This is a strange passage, and we don't know if we're, we're thankful for that. We don't know if we're just a bit tentative about that. We might not know how to respond to this passage in the book of Numbers. Like many of you guys, one of my favorite pastimes right now is sitting in front of the television and binge-watching copious amounts of good television on Netflix, Amazon Prime, HBO, Hulu. Can anyone in the room relate to that? Okay, I think I've become somewhat of a connoisseur of the television episode. I've seen all the different ways that writers have tried to hook people in and bring them in. By far, the worst way that people do this in a suspenseful show, in my opinion, is when you see something happen in the initial shots of the episode and you say to yourself, I don't remember any of this. What's going on? What's happening here? You might even look over to your television watching partner and say, do you, did we miss an episode? Did I fall asleep in the last 30 minutes of the last episode? And then at the bottom of the screen, you'll see something like this two days earlier. And then it'll take you back in the episode to fill in all the blanks that are leading up to this climactic moment that they're showing in the initial shots of the episode. Tonight, I'm not going to take us 
two days earlier. I'm going to take us a lot of days earlier in order for us to understand the context of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We're going back to this passage in the book of Numbers, or as it is known in Hebrew, uh, Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. This book is set in Israel's wilderness wanderings. In fact, you could look at it in one of two different ways. The people are moving from Mount Sinai to the plains of Moab before they will eventually enter into the promised land, and the book of Numbers is sketching out their journey, or as the book of Numbers is known, there's also a, a something to be said about Numbers. In fact, in the, in the initial uh, chapters, it, it leads out a census, and it's counting all of the different people of the different tribes of Israel and focusing on the people that are able to fight in any sort of military wars that are coming up. There's two different foci in the book of Numbers, but for most of us, we don't have a real good grip on what's going on in the book of Numbers. It's not, in my opinion, a book that you would find yourself reading in your daily devotionals. It certainly isn't one where you have the daily bread and it has a little line at the top and you'll say, oh, that's from Numbers, that's so, that's so sweet. But as I was doing some research, um, Joanne Hackett, who was a professor at Harvard for a number of years, says this about the book of Numbers. She says, the book of Numbers contains some of the best known passages in the Bible, to which I say, come on, Joanne. <laughs> Come on. Some of the best known passages. And then she lists some of them for us. Balaam's talking donkey and the oracles of Balaam. And I'll give that to you if you've been in, in church for any amount of time. And the story of uh, the talking donkey, it's known. Um, the priestly benediction, which we'll actually use at the end of this service. The spies returning from Canaan with huge clusters of grapes. The manna and the quails. The water from the rock. Miriam's leprosy the text that we're reading this, this evening. She also notes the revolts of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram as, as a well-known passage, the magical budding of Aaron's rod, the man executed for gathering sticks on the Sabbath, the daughters of Zelephaphad, the apostasy at Baal Peor, and the rituals for a woman suspected of adultery, for men and women taking a Nazarite vow, and for cleansing pollution from contact with a corpse. You know, some of the best-known passages in the Bible, those, those great ritual texts, for cleansing pollution from contact with the corpse. We love to go back to those as a family and just sit around and hold hands and read those out loud. They're well known. It's not rare for Abe to come out of Sunday school with something drawn about that. Um, I think Joanne's kind of extended herself a bit here to say these are some of the best known stories in the Old Testament. And perhaps, again, for some of the church crowd, the people that have spent time in Sunday school or in a Bible-teaching church, maybe you've heard some of these, but I would gather that for the overwhelming majority of you, you have no idea who Zelephaphad is and what his daughters have to do with anything. And you don't love reading ritual texts, which leads me to the conclusion that maybe numbers is not your jam, as some kids somewhere might say. I'm not sure if they do. But this text, it's, it's leading us into the wilderness where Israel is, is wandering. And it's also the transitional moment in Israel's history where the first generation that has left from Egypt that has been involved in the exodus because of their sin, because of their recalcitrance, that community was unable to enter into the promised land. And we see a transition where these people are dying and the new generation of Israel is rising up 
poised to enter into the promised land. And in the text that we looked at this evening, it's one of the last few texts with the old Israel. In fact, we get a complaint story in the book of Numbers here. This is a literary trope that is well known in the Pentateuch. It's well known specifically in Exodus and Numbers, and it gets rehearsed in the Psalms collections of um, their retelling of their own, of Israel's story. We see this when Israel has just left Egypt, and they're out in the wilderness in Exodus 15, and they say, Moses, did you bring us out here to die? We don't have any food. We don't have any water. Would that we be back in Egypt serving under taskmasters, being oppressed, being slaves, because at least we had good food there, and now we're in the wilderness with nothing And we see that the people, they keep coming back to complain. They complain about when God gives them manna from heaven and every morning they can go out and they can collect this divine meal. They begin to complain and say, we're tired of manna. We want meat. Give us quail. Moses, give us meat. It's a people that just continually complain. And in this passage here in in Numbers 21, we have the last of Israel's complaint story. They say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? One commentator says that they begin talking nonsense here, and perhaps you heard this in the first read-through of this text. They say, there's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. You find the connection there? There's no food, but we detest this food. They're not really making any rational sense, but they're just complaining about what they have that God has given to them, and they don't want it anymore. They want something Different. I don't know if you guys are the type that make meals and you just kind of plan them out or you make one big pot of soup and then by Thursday or Friday, you're just tired of that soup. This is like that except on steroids, like 20, 30, 40 years. They're tired of the same meal and they want something different and they're complaining. I want you to take note of something. The takeaway, the take home from this passage in Numbers 21 is not that you don't complain to God. It's not that you don't petition God. It's not that you don't lament God. I'm using a lot of double negatives and my English majors in the room are are cringing at that, but hopefully you can catch what I'm saying. The point of this text is not that we go home and say, okay, in order for me to commune with God and to speak with God, I must be on my best behavior, I must not say these things, I must not lodge any complaints, I must not, I must not lodge any sort of petition because all throughout the Old Testament, we see the people of Israel saying to God, do what you're supposed to do. You've given us all these promises, they're not coming to fruition, and we are standing here begging you, God, to do those things. Petitionary prayer, lament, it's a real form of communication with God. And if you just want to step away from the moment here and analyze where we are as a culture and as a country, we have things that we can petition God for. We have things that we can lament that are happening in our world that God wants us to raise to him. Now, I I struggled with with what I wrote there because it says the point is not 
to not complain. And you might wanna nitpick at that a little bit because what we have in this text is them complaining. And I'm not saying that you should go home and, and start like listing out all the things that you hate about your life and about the world. That's not what I'm saying at all. But God can take some of the stuff that we give to him, whether it's super personal stuff or whether it's stuff that the injustices that we see out in the world, those are the things that we're supposed to give to God, okay? The point here is not that we don't do that. The point is not that we mind our P's and Q's and never um, challenge or push God or ask God to do the things that God says he's going to do. That's not the point. But in this text, the Lord sends venomous snakes among the people. They bite the people and many Israelites die. So remember, back up. The point is not that we don't complain. It's not that we don't lament or petition. But in this passage, when the people say, we're tired of this food, we want something else to eat, God sends venomous, poisonous snakes and he, they bite the people and a lot of them die. Let's pray. God, we're just thankful for this word. No, we have a strange passage here where God is sending these venomous snakes. It's interesting, in the Hebrew, people don't quite know what these venomous snakes are supposed to be. In fact, one scholar would say the meaning of the Hebrew seraph is uncertain because at times this animal is lodged between snakes and scorpions. At other times, this, uh, this animal is a flying creature. At other points, it's, it's an angelic sort of being, like in Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim comes from this root here. Uh, usually that, that verb there, it means uh, to burn or to set on fire. It's unclear, he says, whether burning connotes a poisonous effect upon the bite of the snake, as has been suggested, seeing that in all of the occurrences of this word in the Hebrew Bible, it refers to the effect of fire. Could it be, he postulates, that the seraph is a fire-spewing dragon? Could it be? Now, I have to, like, uh, entertain myself a bit when I'm looking at these books that are super nerdy. When I see a line that says, could it be a fire-spewing dragon, I pause, and I say, oh, yeah. Sadly, though, no. I, I, hate to, I hate to lead you up to that climax and then break your heart. It's not a fire-spewing dragon because in this passage, the text states that these creatures bit the people, that they were real and fatally poisonous, and they're not mythological, even though, man, that would be fun, Evan. Would that not be fun just for a moment? It's likely, therefore, Baruch Levine says, that the burning refers to the inflammation resulting from the snake bite. God is sending venomous, poisonous snakes to bite these people who are complaining about food. It's not an easy passage for a 21st century, rational, westernized audience to see God handling his business in this sort of way. I would like to encourage you, though, before you start having that, that feeling of, mm, I don't know about this, imagine you're an ancient audience. This sort of uh, discourse was expected, and I'll say accepted as well. 
where we might say as 21st century rational Americans say, I don't like the, the venomous snakes biting and killing a lot of Israelites. Remember that this is an ancient story and it doesn't get us past all of the difficulties, but it at least reminds us that we're not taking our own presuppositions and throwing them back onto the text, but we're attempting to read with ancient eyes. So we have in this passage these venomous snakes that are showing up in this last complaint story, which has a progression of the complaint of the people, the punishment of the Lord, and the intercession of Moses. They cry out, and they get Moses to intercede, saying, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take these snakes away from us. This is Moses' job. He is the intercessor of the people throughout these stories of Moses in the wilderness with these folks. Whenever they're complaining and bad things happen, Moses steps in for them to say, God, let's, let's go in a different direction. Let's, let's do something different. Let's be okay with these people. You can't just bring us all out here to die. We've, we've, got, to, we've got to show your glory by staying alive and building a people. And, and Moses is interceding on behalf of the folks. And God says to Moses, make a snake, put it up on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Again, remember, 21st century rational Western Americans, like reading this passage, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but step back in to the ancient world, and let's think for a moment about magic in the ancient Near East. Oh man, phrases that you never thought you'd hear in church, right? That's got to be one of them, right? Coming from the family where I had a Harry Potter novel and my mom, when I wasn't looking, took it and burned it because it was demonic and we can't have that. I know, don't, don't, don't think poorly of my mom, okay? <laughs> it's okay, right? There's a lot of Jesus in Harry Potter, but we'll leave that off to a different a different side here for a moment. As we think about this, this uh, understanding of the text, we have to go outside of the Bible to see what other people and other cultures are doing in this world in order to get their gods to intervene. And we actually interestingly have texts from the ancient place of Ugarit that address what would happen if someone is bitten by a snake. In fact, they had someone who had access to these texts that would give an incantation. The person would go and they would read these sacred texts in an attempt to get the poison out of the person, to encapsulate it, to allow them to come back to who they were. And it was all through the initiation and incantation of these texts and to bring the divine into play here. A word on magic in the ancient Near East is it was a thing specific specifically outside of Israel. Now, what we see in this passage is something that is similar to what we're seeing uh, beyond the bounds of Israel, but it's important for us to see that if it was a thing, it was only in their mind, it worked if the divine power authorized it. The person at Ugarit who was reading these passages, hoping that the venom would come out of the person, was dependent upon the gods to intercede. It wasn't just reading a formula and then having everything be okay. This person was asking God to do something great to heal the person that was in front of him. 
So we have this, this, uh, this sort of framework in which we are looking at this request from God to Moses to say, get a snake, put it on a pole, and anybody who looks at it will be healed. Similar to these other texts outside of the Bible, the deity was the one who healed, not the magic incantation, also not the snake on the pole. In fact, later on in the Old Testament, uh, I believe it was King Hezekiah, finds this, this snake on a pole and smashes it to smithereens because he says that the people were beginning to follow it like an idol. They were misplacing the power of God in this snake on a pole. But in this passage, God says, get the snake, put it on a pole. Anybody who looks at it will be healed. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, and then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. This is a very strange passage, and it begs a couple of questions. Why a snake? And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to submit to you that this fits within the ancient Near Eastern context of this story, because at least outside of Israel, what would happen when something bad was going on, you might be inclined to make an idol or something of the thing that was happening so that you would have a more powerful thing that was happening that would destroy the smaller thing that was happening. So if snakes are in, infestating your place, you might build a, a, powerful, a more powerful snake to take care of the smaller, weaker snakes. There's a, a weird story in 1 Samuel 5 where the Philistines, when they had the Ark of the Covenant, they were um, taken over by tumors, it says. So they made golden Tumors, so that their own tumors would go away. This is an ancient people. This is an ancient way of thinking about this. So when Moses is building this bronze snake, putting it on a pole, he is, he is living into this world of what scholars call sympathetic magic because his snake was more powerful than the other snakes, the fire-breathing dragons that God was bringing upon this people. How did their healing come about? Not because of the thing that Moses had built, but because God was healing them. Some scholars have wondered what, what this gaze of the people was like when they were looking upon this snake on a pole, what, what it would have um, connoted for them to look up and to lock eyes with this figure and some people have said it was about trust. It was about hope. It was about something beyond themselves intervening in that moment. It was not just a bronze snake on a pole. It was the inner constitution of the people to say, we believe that Yahweh will heal us. Now, when you're watching these shows and you've gone back in time and you've, you've brought everybody up to, to speed, at some point you'll come back to the moment where it makes sense, where you left off. You're like, okay, I understand what's going on here because I have all of this background information. And I'm hopeful that this very strange story in the Old Testament, now that we have it in our back pocket, even though some of the terms are strange, some of you might be sitting there thinking, oh, magic, I don't know, I don't like that. It just doesn't sound right, doesn't sound good. Understand that that's outside of, 
of Israel. These are things, these are concepts that are being utilized here. But Moses with his bronze snake on a pole, people looking at it and being saved because Yahweh is intervening and allowing them to be saved. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in chapter 3 of the book of John, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a powerful person. He's a member of the Jewish ruling class. He's the teacher of Israel, according to Jesus. He shows up at night to ask Jesus these questions. Who are you? What are you doing? How can we follow you? And what we found last week is Nicodemus did not have the framework to understand any of the things that Jesus was, was saying to him. Jesus said things like, you must be born anothen. You must be born from above. It's not about your, your Jewish uh, DNA. It's not about your, your family line. It's not about your family tree. It's not about who you are, but it's about being born from above. It's about the spirit intervening in your life. It's about something that will happen to you as opposed to you bringing it to be. Nicodemus had no categories for that and the way that Jesus begins to describe this in John chapter 3 in verse 13 he says no one has ever gone into heaven Nicodemus except the one who came from heaven the son of man just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him this is the only time in the New Testament when this story from Numbers 21 is cited. This is the only time that any author makes good of it. And what Jesus seems to be doing here is drawing a comparison between the snake on a pole that is lifted up that people could just gaze upon and be saved and how Jesus himself would be lifted up on the cross and anyone who believed in him would have eternal life. N.T. Wright says, Moses put a serpent on a pole and lifted it up so that people could see it. Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Humankind as a whole, he says, has been smitten with a deadly disease. The only cure is to look at the Son of Man dying on the cross and find life through believing in him. Jesus is pulling this comparison between what happened way back then and what he is up to right now. And for the Israelites, when they looked upon that image and trusted, when they looked upon that image and hoped in the story, they were saved, they were healed, they were restored. And Jesus, in an attempt to explain to Nicodemus what this is all about, he says, so too will I be lifted up and anyone not who looks at me but anyone who believes in me will have eternal life this comes to this classic text which so often we just read devoid of anything that has been said but the author says for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life Life. This image of the Old Testament pales in comparison to what Jesus is, is asking people to begin to move towards. But as I hear that, as I hear John 3.16, as many of you perhaps do, it becomes about 
belief. It becomes about the things, the checklist items that you must believe in in order to be saved. It's interesting, though, that in this passage, it's not just a checklist of Jesus as the pre-existent God who is incarnate, who shows up, who lives a sinless life, who does all these miracles, who then dies on the cross, who then is resurrected from the dead, who then goes and ascends to the hands of the Father. That's not just those things that you believe in, but it's something more. It's trust. It's living in allegiance to Jesus. As Jesus would say, it's following him. When he shows up and the disciples are out fishing or doing whatever and he says, come and follow me, they leave everything and they go after him. They don't just believe in a a laundry list of things that are true about Jesus. They go after him with everything that they have and attempt to follow him in their actions and in their words and in their deeds. And those guys fail miserably as do we oftentimes, but let us not be content just to think, just to believe, just to have the checklist. May we be the people who align ourselves with Jesus, who look upon the cross, so to speak, and we don't just look, but we trust and we hope and we plead that God would do something in our Lives. This is not just an intellectual assent to truths about Jesus. This is a life of transformation where we follow the risen Christ and where we go wherever he asks us to go. And he writes, says, all we can do, just as it was for all the Israelites and what all they could do, is to look and trust, to look at Jesus, to see in him the full display of God's saving love and to trust in him. I don't know what your baggage is with John 3.16. I don't know what your baggage is with the church. I don't know what your baggage is with Jesus. But the hope in this text is that we would look upon him and that we would trust, that we would begin to align our lives with him and what he is calling us toward, that we would see injustice in the world and that we would fight against it, that we would see people being marginalized and oppressed and that we would become advocates for them, that the way that we love would be tangible expressions of the gospel, where we have Jesus who is lifted up for the benefit of everyone in the world who would just look upon him and trust that our lives too would show the world an image that we are not in it for ourselves and for our gain, but we are in it for the kingdom and we are in it so that Jesus can continue to move and restore this world. That our lives would not be cocooned off into just our family, but we would begin to open up the doors and to invite people in that need to have hope. That we can give them tangible expressions of that through Jesus. In this strange story, Moses holds up a bronze snake on a pole and people can just look at it and be saved. Jesus takes this and shows himself as the fulfillment of that, the son of man who would be lifted up, who would take on the evil in the world and put it to death so that anyone who looks upon him and trusts will become a son or daughter of the most high God. If you have written yourself out of the story this evening, 
come back home. If you have said, I am not good enough, I am not there, I'm not, I'm not with it, then let this text be the clarion call for you to come back home, recognizing that this isn't about being good enough, that this is about saying, I will follow you. For God so loved the world. I hope that as we begin to move in the direction of understanding what it looks like not just to believe this list of things, but to trust them and to live in light of them, that we would also begin to experience the eternal life that is granted us not just after we die, but here. And now Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life to the full. And my hope is that we begin to revel in that here and now. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.